This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. District 87 voters don't have a lot of choice for school board candidates, but there are some recommended qualities for a board member. Understands um, what it's like to teach in a very diverse district. District 87 school board candidates introduce themselves. Plus, hear what the McLean County Health Department hasn't been able to do while it deals with the pandemic. The first electric school buses have come to central Illinois. And WGLT Arts correspondent Laura Kennedy retires again after telling you about the What's So Good About Good Friday art exhibition. and a news update on the way. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. Support for Sound Ideas comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology, the best hearing device center in the Panagraph Reader's Choice Awards for the sixth year in a row. Bloomington Normal Audiology thanks the listeners and their continued vote of confidence as the leaders in hearing and technology. With a practice featuring five doctors, including two who wear hearing devices themselves, BNA takes a genuine interest in each patient and helps you keep hearing the most important sounds of your life. More information at bnaudiology.com. Bloomington Normal Audiology, here for you. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Let's run down some of the day's top stories. The McLean County Health Department has counted 30 more deaths tied to COVID-19 after a review of state records. That brings the county's COVID death toll to 207. County Health Department spokesperson Marianne Manco says the county asked for an audit from the Illinois Department of Public Health after staff noticed discrepancies between county and state data following a surge in deaths. The biggest issue was that we really got slammed in January and February with our vaccine clinics and the people who oftentimes spend a lot of time looking over these numbers on the internet just didn't have as much time to do it. Many of the newly counted deaths were in December. That's when COVID deaths peaked. The county reports confirmed and probable COVID deaths together. The state does not. A group of Illinois car dealers has filed a lawsuit against Rivian and Illinois Secretary of State Jesse White. They allege plans to sell electric vehicles directly to consumers are illegal. The lawsuit was filed in Cook County Court. It's part of a nationwide legal fight between legacy auto dealerships and young EV companies like Tesla and Rivian. The car dealers claim Rivian doesn't have a license to sell new vehicles and couldn't get one if it tried. They also say the Secretary of State has failed to enforce state law. Rivian will make its electric vehicles at its manufacturing plant in Normal. The company already had 890 employees in normal as of early March with plans to hire hundreds more soon. Illinois lawmakers have approved a bill that would increase payouts in personal injury verdicts. The bill tax on 6% prejudgment interest to what victims can collect. Bob Panton is president of the Illinois State Medical Society. He says the bill will drive medical providers out of Illinois because of higher liability costs. Half of the residents that are trained in Illinois, they leave to go to other states because it's, quote, a better medical climate. Those are the kind of things that happen when you significantly 
um, affect the medical liability system. The bill awaits Governor J.B. Pritzker's signature. The governor vetoed a similar measure that called for higher interest payments. That bill also applied to out-of-court settlements. More than two-thirds of staff at Illinois prisons rejected their chance at getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Experts say the vaccine is needed to keep prisons and the communities around them safe from the virus. Patrick Smith reports. The state finished the first round of vaccinations at all 25 of its prisons earlier this month. It's reporting 63% of inmates took it. Only 27% of staff did. I'm both appalled and not surprised. Attorney Alan Mills represents Illinois inmates. He says he's heard many stories of guards minimizing the virus and refusing to wear masks. A state spokeswoman says they are continuing to educate staff and inmates about the vaccine and they will be given other opportunities to get the shot. I'm Patrick Smith. A massive piece of health care legislation to address racial disparities in health care access and treatment in the state is making its way to the governor's desk. State Senator Maddie Hunter of Chicago says the need to address equity in health care has been made painfully obvious during the pandemic when black and brown Illinoisans have died of the disease at a higher rate than whites. It is our responsibility as elected officials to create laws that create an enriched, lasting impact on the communities we represent. Democrats earlier this year passed three other tenets of the Black Caucus agenda, including bills meant to address criminal justice reform, education, and access to economic opportunity. Governor Pritzker has signed all those bills and indicates he'll sign the health care bill too. While the bill permanently expanding vote-by-mail and curbside voting in Illinois received bipartisan support, there are some who are concerned with how it was crafted. Tazewell County Clerk John Ackerman says the county clerk's office is legally required to pick up postage costs for mail-in ballots without stamps. A federal grant paid those costs in 2020, but Ackerman says local taxpayers will likely be picking up the tab going forward. This legislation requires that the county clerk pick up the cost, but then there is no funding mechanism put with it. Tazewell County received a $64,000 federal grant to pick up postage costs in the 2020 general election. Illinois could have a new state holiday commemorating the day in 1865 when the last enslaved people were freed. A state Senate committee has approved making June 19th Juneteenth National Freedom Day. State Senator Kimberly Lightfoot of Maywood sponsored the bill. Uh, Making Juneteenth a state holiday is a way of highlighting our freedom and reminding us how far we've come and a reminder that black Americans are still recovering from the terrible legacy of slavery. The bill would create a paid holiday for state employees. Lightford says the day is a milestone for black Americans that should be celebrated and used to educate youth. An Illinois State University sorority says it is stepping up to collect shoes for people in developing nations. Delta Zeta Lambda Rho says it is just 300 shoe pairs shy of the 1,500-pair goal. Allie Lawler heads philanthropy for the sorority. She says this year the sorority is raising more money than they did pre-pandemic. It's hard trying to find creative things to still bring in money for a philanthropy because that's honestly what we're all about. That's why we're a part of the sorority. The sorority partners with Angel Bins to distribute the shoes. Angel Bins then will contribute money back to the sorority, which will buy hearing aids for the poor and hearing impaired through a different foundation. Bradley University basketball legend Stan Albeck has died at age 89. The Bradley Athletics Hall of Fame inductee played in 54 games for the Braves in the 1950s and coached the team for five seasons from 1986 to 1991. His 27-year coaching career included six seasons as an NBA head coach, including one year with the Bulls in Michael Jordan's second season. Albeck's son, John, tells the San Antonio Express News uh, Albeck died in hospice 
care Thursday following a March 14th stroke. This is Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM WGLT and WGLT.org. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. BNA continues its educational video series, Hear My Story, with local patient Robert Handley. Once I got the Bluetooth hearing aid, I'd say 90% of the people that I talk to on the phone, I can understand. Didn't have that before. Robert's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. You're listening to Bloomington Normal's Public Media. Voters in District 87 don't have a lot of choices when they make their school board selections on Election Day, but the new board will have one of its most important decisions to make soon after it is sworn in in the spring. Eric Stock looks at the race and how board members could shape the Bloomington public school system for years to come. The District 87 school board has four open seats on the ballot on April 6th and three candidates. It was five until John Reed pulled out of the race after a series of offensive social media posts surfaced. Then on Friday, Fitzgerald Samdi told the Pantograph he planned to withdraw from the race. Samdi had initially campaigned with Reed. That leaves three incumbents on the ballot, Bridget Beasley-Gibson, Elizabeth Fox-Anvik, and Chuck Irwin. The board would have to appoint someone to fill the remaining open seat unless someone files as a write-in candidate. Chuck Irwin is a retired school administrator. He is seeking a second term on the board. Irwin says the school board has two main jobs, set policy for the school system, and hire a superintendent. The new board will get that chance soon, as Barry Riley has announced he will retire after the next school year. Irwin says the district needs someone with vision to guide the district through tough financial times. That's something he says Riley has done well. Even with the financial situations in the district, uh, if you look around the district, uh, let's say just look at our facilities and buildings, the new band uh, facility, uh, athletic field, um, We've been able to maintain uh, what we have and also to expand on, on facilities. Elizabeth Fox-Anvik works in IT at State Farm. She is seeking a second term on the school board. Anvik says the search for a new school leader presents a challenge and an opportunity. She says it's important the district hire someone who understands the needs of a diverse school district. Understands um, what it's like to teach uh, in a very diverse district because uh, you need to be able to connect with all of your students. Black and Hispanic students and other minorities make up a majority of the student population in District 87. Bridget Beasley Gibson works as a career track manager at State Farm. She's been on the board since 2016. Gibson says diversity is also a key issue for her. She and Superintendent Barry Riley have co-chaired a committee on diversity, equity, and inclusion in District 87. In an effort to get together on a regular basis to, to build our acumen around uh, DNI as it relates to education and then hear from the community in terms of what they want to see and how things should be different. The pandemic has overshadowed much of the work educators have done in the past year with many students learning from home. District 87 has already started to move students into the classroom on a limited basis. The school board has been largely hands-off on return-to-school plans. Board members Bridget Beasley-Gibson, Chuck Irwin, and Elizabeth Fox-Anvik say the administration has handled the pandemic well. And Fox-Anvik says the board isn't there to micromanage. I would hate for us to start to get down in the weeds on some things, um, because then it's a slippery slope of... uh, well, hey, why didn't we call a snow day today? 
right? The school board incumbents say District 87 has managed its money well, even though state funding hasn't kept up with rising costs. Chuck Irwin says it's possible budget cuts may be coming if state funding stays flat. He notes the district issued working cash bonds last year, and he says that should keep the district on good financial footing for several years. Irwin says if the district ever needed a financial lifeline, he'd likely want to go to the voters to consider a tax increase. Cutting programs um, is a difficult decision, and, and and that involves staff because that's where most of your uh, expense is, is in terms of salaries. And uh, so there'd be programs that would have to be cut. There'd be staff that would have to be cut. Bridget Beasley-Gibson says the district has discussed a tax referendum in the past. She says if it became necessary, the district would look to see if Unit 5 would consider its own referendum. That's always one of the key things that we try to do is kind of work together. And if, and, and if we were, we would kind of consider the needs of both districts. Gibson says the district's property tax rate of $5.15 is in a good place now. District 87's tax rate has essentially stayed flat for several years. Its tax levy increased about 3% this year. That's based on a projected increase in taxable land values. As for Fitzgerald Sandy, the candidate who just dropped out of the race, he had distinctly different views from the other candidates. He says he got into the race in part to reopen the schools. He says too many kids and parents were struggling, he wanted the school board to take a more active role. And Sandy took a more critical view of District 87's finances. He says the district's taxes were too high, and he implied without evidence the district is wasting money on things not relevant to education. Where is the money going and how is it being spent? That's why I would like to run for, for District 87, get to the bottom of it, and it's just being spent on buying luxury couches going to be cut. Sandy didn't say what he would remove from the budget. He said he'd have to see it first. Instead, Sandy has removed himself from the school board race. I'm Eric Starr. Election day is April 6th. Early voting is already underway. This is Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM WGLT and WGLT.org. The Pekin and Hollis school districts are proudly touting Central Illinois' first electric school buses. Tim Shelley reports. The two new buses were purchased using funds from the $8.6 million Edwards Power Plant settlement. Chad Jones is superintendent of Hollis Consolidated School District 328. Replacing our diesel bus with the electric bus will benefit our kids with respiratory issues such as asthma and will reduce school absences. Tucker Kennedy is the Director of Communications for Amron, Illinois, which worked to install the bus charging stations. We see this project and we see what we're doing in these school districts and the opportunities that we have as a real important step in the transportation electrification because that's really where a lot of these emissions come from. The buses are vehicle to grid, meaning they can not only recharge but also transfer power to the grid. Gregory Polan is CEO of Nuvi Corporation which developed this technology. This type of equipment is complex because you're not just taking energy from the grid, you're pushing it back to the grid as well. This is the first time in the U.S. that, that a, a bus is providing potential energy back to the grid in order to provide grid services. That means the bus batteries store energy when the power grid doesn't have an immediate need. The stored energy can then be sold back to the grid by the school districts when it's in demand. That provides a new revenue source. Chad Jones says that money will help make up for the $65,000 in tax revenue they'll lose when the Edwards Power Plant closes next year. 
I'm Tim Shelley. You're listening to Bloomington Normals Public Media. McLean County Health Department Administrator Jessica McKnight says many of the department's client services remain at reduced capacity as staff devotes much of its time to COVID-19. McKnight says the department has also had to scale back or pause health education campaigns as COVID protocols remain in place. McKnight tells Eric Stock since the pandemic began, the department's 75-person staff has had to work long hours, cross-train for different tasks, and spend at least three-quarters of their time dealing with the coronavirus. COVID has kind of touched all of the different programs that we offer. And so even if it's not directly involved in COVID response, still dealing with how COVID has affected some of those programs. So when COVID hit, uh, you had just been on the job for a few weeks and COVID naturally overshadowed everything. As you had to shift resources to address the pandemic, what were some of the things that you had to put in the back burner? Not really, you know, big picture planning, so strategic planning, um, getting out in the community more uh, because I really, you know, no one was was meeting in person. So that's kind of shifted a little bit, getting involved in new, any new programs. So the most significant dip, I think, we saw in our, our clinics, so direct client services, adult and children's dental. So when I mentioned, you know, there were some programs and services that weren't weren't happening, you know, there was a there was a time there for several months in late spring where dental providers across the state were, were not seeing patients. Many dental procedures produce aerosol, which is a, is a high risk of COVID-19 spread to staff and patients. So dental was a service that was definitely put on hold temporarily. Uh, and again, the other client direct client services, HIV, STD testing here at the health department, uh, the personnel that we had, especially before the contact tracing personnel came on board, the, the same personnel that were, were doing the testing and treatment for HIV, STD, STIs, were the same case investigators and contact tracers. Have those direct client services gotten back to normal at this point? Not quite normal. So for our, for our WIC services, there's still several that are done on the phone. We're still doing curbside pickup. Uh, the dental services, everything is is kind of in a reduced capacity. And we're, we're living in a world where we're, we're doing everything we can to social distance. So sometimes that means reduced capacities in your appointments. Uh, again, just limiting interactions so that we can prevent the spread of the virus. Hospital administrators have, have addressed this uh, lack of preventative maintenance, uh, people getting fewer regular checkups and health screenings because of COVID. And that is created its own health uh, consequences. Uh, what what have the consequences been from a public health standpoint that you've seen from having to, you know, withhold a lot of this maintenance or delay it over the last year? I think we'll see it more going forward, the, the long-term effects you know, of, of COVID and how it has affected all, all of our environments, you know, from yeah, delayed services, to the effects on on mental health and you know children in school, so you know I'm I think time will tell us. Um, it, it may even shift a little bit how public health what will what our priority health issues are. Uh, that's something that we we look at. We look at data from the community health needs assessment, and I think that COVID nineteen will definitely have an effect on what we see in our data, and it, it may shift 
a little bit in in our priority health needs. I think they still would probably be very similar. You know, we're we're looking at access to care um, and you know, mental health, but we may see some some long term things that we would want to focus on in public health. Are there any examples of initiatives that you had planned to transition back into as COVID uh, subsides, perhaps over this year? And has that started yet? So some of the things, you know, just off the top of my head, thinking about our, um, you know, mental health first aid and some of our health promotion programs, um, you know, looking at vaping education in schools. So these are these are things that we really we put on hold for a, a while, especially because again, meeting in person is just not safe at the moment. But just like with everything else with COVID, finding ways to adapt and how can we do these programs in the world that we're in right now. So doing, you know, mental health first aid virtually or doing it online, um, you know, self, self-guided programs or, um, you know, vaping education. How can, how can we maybe create the materials and share those with schools that, so they can do that without us, you know, if we're not able to go into the school. So those are just some of the examples of, again, just kind of adapting to the world that we're in right now and still, still offering the programs that we're, we're looking at. That's McLean County Health Department Administrator Jessica McKnight with Eric Stock. McKnight says the department will likely offer more services virtually if they don't need to be in person, such as case management visits with clients. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. An annual community art show combines art and spirituality, allowing artists to explore their feelings regarding one of the most important days in the Christian faith, Good Friday. WGLT Arts correspondent Laura Kennedy has more. The Art Circle of Bloomington Normal and Second Presbyterian Church unite for the 12th annual What's So Good About Good Friday exhibition. Drayton Haddon, senior pastor at Second Presbyterian, says this is a community art show that focuses on Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and how artists find meaning and inspiration within the events. The Art Circle's Angel Ambrose says the idea for the show came from a difficult question that was posed to her. I had a friend who basically asked me, you know, why do Christ followers think the cross is good? It was such a horrific event. And my answer to her was partly what birthed this entire thought process is for a Christ follower, it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new story. And it's the beginning of of a really good story, a story of redemption. Trayton, tell me about why Second Press has teamed up with Art Circle to to do what's so good about Good Friday. Collaboration with community. I feel that that's really where the church is called. We're not called to just be within these walls that we are surrounded by. We're called to be outside of these walls, sharing, you know, we like to say the gospel message. In this particular situation, we're talking about what's so good about Good Friday. What's so good about it? It's the fact that death wasn't the end. It's the fact that there is hope. You know, we live in a world that seems to be consumed by darkness in every corner and every place that we turn around. We see division and resurrection. That's the name of the game for us. That is where we find our hope. It's where we find our inspiration. It's where that we know that what happens in this world is not the end, but that there is power and that death does not call the shot, that there is life. So us teaming up with this group of artists, it gives us an opportunity to collaborate with the community 
it gives us an opportunity to share that story. It gives them a platform to be able to share it with believers. We can sit here and, and I can preach. We can sit here and, and read. We can take in all the different ways of learning information. But, but artists, they have a way of conveying a message and sharing a story that's totally different. So I think it's really where the church needs to be. I don't think that this is the end-all uh, be-all. But I think it's a really great platform for us to be able to work together in. Can you tell me about, about the impact of the pandemic and how you think it will manifest in this show? Well, first off, how we're showing the show to begin with. This year, we're actually going to be doing What's So Good About Good Friday outside. We're going to have it posted on the outside wall of the church. We've got a really big projector. We've got it all set up. It's going to be on a loop. I think it's going to go till probably nine o'clock on Good Friday. People are going to be looking at it through a lens where we really want to find God in the pandemic. Knowing that Jesus walked with us each and every day 2,000 years ago, that's great. But how do we see God in the pandemic now? And I'm interested to see how we see people representing the power of God and the power of hope in the world during a time of pandemic. We are such a visual society. An image can stay with you for a very long time. And the artist is creating something with a narrative in themselves. But when the viewer sees it, they can bring a whole new thing to it. I remember an older gentleman who was very studied with his knowledge of the Bible. And I believe he saw a, a, a child's art and he said, I learned something new. And it was something that touched him deeply. It wasn't just a head knowledge. It was, it was a touch here. And I think visual imagery, it can make an impact on us in a way that sometimes words alone may not. I hope that when people see this show, I hope that they are given the opportunity to leave transformed in a way that they can find hope through God in the world. That's Drayton Haddon, senior pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Bloomington, and Angel Ambrose from Art Circle of Bloomington Normal. What's So Good About Good Friday runs on a video screen outside of Second Presbyterian, as well as inside on Friday, April 2nd. You can also see the works at Art Circle of Bloomington Normal's Facebook page. I'm Laura Kennedy. To check out photos from the exhibition, just go to WGLT.org. And at this point, we'd like to thank Laura Kennedy for all her years of reporting and work at WGLT. She is retiring again after today. Thanks for choosing Sound Ideas on WGLT, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm Charlie Schlenker. This is Bloomington Normal's Public Media.